0: They're taking over, aren't they? Mm, Clones of me. That's dangerous. We don't need those. It's kind of scary. Yeah, it kind of is. Wow. One's good. So we learned a lot today, didn't we? Dr. John told us about gallium. And then Tobias told us about chemistry Mm -hmm. and how important it is. And I'm just happy to announce that I took chemistry. That was one of your five majors, wasn't it? And I learned something in chemistry. What did you learn? I learned about gallium. What did you learn? I learned that gallium was dating helium. Gallium. (laughs) Think about it. Okay. They taught you that. Do you know I make that up? (laughs) That's good. Gallium arsenide is a very interesting thing. Yeah, but we won't talk about that today because it's on the agenda. What happened when gallium and helium got together? Well, gallium is like gal. I
1: got she that. is a
0: gal, uh-huh. and he is he. Uh-huh. And gallium, helium, yeah. they were dating. Uh-huh. And the way they create. <laughs> Two pages. <No>. <laughs> <laughs> it's a miracle. That's miracle like of that. science. <clears throat> All right, we have to get maybe get serious for a minute because we have students that really want to know about the hydrogen engine and how it works. And in that regard, I have something from our amazing artist Ryan Eder. Uh, you guys know about Ryan; he does the really neat illustrations for Asellus, yes. and, and Ryan's a pretty amazing guy, yes. isn't he? Uh, he actually does covers for magazines like Wired Magazine. I mm-hmm. think he's, he's the best. He just happens to be part of the team, and we're mm-hmm. excited. But I asked him if he could make an illustration of the hydrogen atom. Yeah. And he did. Only I want to see who can decode it. So can we bring up the picture of the hydrogen atom? There it is, look at that. Way to go, Ryan. you notice, on the left you've got the proton and on the right you've got the electron. And you know that it's hydrogen because it's got but one proton and one electron. And there it goes Now the decoding part, over on the right there is a series of strange symbols. And if you look at them very carefully, you can figure out what that says. Yep, I can. Up at the very, very, very top in the dark blue, is an H. Can you see that? And then a Y, and then a D. Can you read it? Hydrogen. Isn't that beautiful? <laughs> it, is, it is. incredible. I love it. Ryan has done it again. It's beautiful. This is a brand, his first time seeing shown. It is so fresh that the paint's still wet. Yeah, it is. Which on a computer is amazing. This is, <laughs> this is ours. hydrogen, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, that's, that's really kind of exciting. Yeah. And I have an idea. Um, when we did the, uh, the Black Star discussion a few weeks ago, mm-hmm. we had a lot of people write up little essay things and send them in. And we're going to be sending out a bunch of posters, yes. a whole bunch of them. We're having those posters printed, by the way, so be a little bit patient because, you know, the printer has to not made out of steel. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> so we'll have them soon, but I want to do Something kind of like that today. For those that are with us live, if you would like to have a copy of this image for your very own, then on the computer that you're watching with, send a message and just say hashtag hydrogen. Okay, and then you have to give me an email address that I can send you this image. Okay. And I won't, I won't send it, but nope. she will. Steamwork. <laughs> me, me and my people. Steamwork, mm-hmm. and your people, huh? <laughs> so here's the deal. So you just mm. go in and put in a message, and if you want to, you can be very proliferate, and you can say, I would like a copy of the hydrogen image. That'll do. And then we'll send it to you. And in fact, we can send them right now. Yes. So if they write, we can send them. That'd be great. We can. Yeah. Here we go. We're hoping we get more <laughs> than two people. Okay? You think we will? I think we will. Uh, all right. So uh, while you're doing that, I want to talk a little bit about hydrogen. So if you take that hydrogen in the image and connect it with an oxygen atom and another hydrogen, because oxygen's like two hydrogens, you make water. The thing, though, is that there is energy that is released when hydrogen combines with oxygen. And that energy comes off as heat. And the heat then can propel the hydrogen engine. And I've talked about that several times before. And some of the people get it, especially the ones that kind of understand engines. So today what I want to do is make sure everybody gets it. So I have brought a prop. I'm going to be proper. That's a functional prop, isn't it? It's a funky prop, yes. <laughs> it is, and and I'd like to I'd like to kind of go through this in slow motion. So this is a model of an internal combustion engine, or the engine like in a car, and uh, we we talked about these parts, and I try to explain them. This this time I'm going to show you. Most engines aren't cut open like this, you can't see inside. you look under the hood of a car, you see up, there it is. But this is what's happening inside. And today we're all going to become experts and understand this. And there are a lot of things in this model that are very much like a real engine. And I kind of want to show you how that works. So in the middle is the piston. And a piston is a round cylinder and it goes up and down in the engine. And that's a lot of how you generate power. So this white thing represents the piston. And if you notice on the top of the piston, there are three red rings. These rings go all the way around the piston. And for you guys that have rebuilt engines, you know that when you're inserting the piston into the hole or into the cylinder, that you have to put these rings around the piston and then you compress them and slip them into the hole. Why why would they put rings around the piston? And the answer is, when we start burning the fuel, it's gonna create a lot of pressure to push the piston down. I'm gonna explain that a little bit more in a minute. But that pressure will leak around the edge of the piston and it'll be wasted instead of pushing it down. So to make sure that all of that pressurized gas doesn't leak, we have the, the rings. And the rings are made so that when pressure pushes down on them, it pushes them out and makes them seal even tighter. So they seal the combustion chamber and make sure that the piston goes down instead of it leaking around the piston. That's an important part of the system. And down on the bottom, there's another ring down here. That one's kind of interesting. You think of all the things you have to do to really make an invention work. The bottom ring on a piston is the oil wiper. Inside the crankcase of an engine, you have oil. You have to have oil to lubricate things or without the oil, they'll grind away. And an engine without oil dies very quickly. Some of you know about that. (laughs) <laughs> That's funny, yeah. When you rebuild an engine, you have to put oil back in before it runs, what we found out. <laughs> but oil is very important. And so the oil is flashed around. As the piston goes up, the, uh, the oil gets on the cylinder inside this tube that it's going up and down in, and it lubricates it. But then as the piston comes down, this bottom ring wipes oil off and pushes it down. And so you have to have these rings and they have to be perfectly precision to be able to work properly. Another thing, when you get the rings all in there and they're in the cylinder, they still don't seal the gas that's trying to leak around the piston wall enough, so they actually lap the rings. And lap is a process where they put a a grinding type material, a fine powder on the piston wall, and they run them up and down so that they can grind themselves smooth, so they will really seal well. So that's called lapping in an engine, and, and they do that. So we're starting to get into a lot of the side details, but I want you to get the idea. So here's the piston. As I turn this crank, you'll notice the piston goes up and down. And that is how we're going to get power out of a fire. Make a fire, you take a piece of wood, or you take some hydrogen, and you ignite it. You get fire. How do you turn fire into driving a car? And that is the mission and the purpose of the internal combustion engine, is to turn the fire, the heat in the fire, into the energy to turn your wheels. And that's what this is gonna do. So look at the piston here, and you can imagine, piston's way up here at the top of the cylinder, If I were to put hydrogen and air in there and ignite it, well then the fire would push the piston down. And as it pushes it down, it would turn the crankshaft down here at the bottom. Now I want you to kind of see down here if you can. This is, uh, the part of the engine is called the crankshaft. And this is a rod that goes through the bottom of, of the engine And it has offsets on it, or eccentrics. And these make it so that when it's over the side and you push down, it turns the shaft. So just by pushing down, it turns the shaft. In a a regular automobile engine, there's usually eight of these pistons. And they are adjusted so they all push down at different times to keep the engine turning. Uh, A lawnmower engine might only have one piston and they use a flywheel to keep it turning around another cycle. But the crankshaft then is a rod that turns, that's hooked up to the wheels, usually through a gear shift. And in the crank, they have cut-out pieces and have eccentrics so that you have the ability to have the piston go down and it it pushes the crankshaft. Does that make sense? Okay, I hope it does. This thing right here that connects the piston to the crankshaft, called the connecting rod, and we go into a lot of the details. Guys that rebuild engines know all about all these things, and they all have to be just perfect in order for the engine to work. Okay, so let's look at the upper part of the engine. Up here, we have the intake manifold on this side. This is where the hydrogen and air goes into the engine. And we have the exhaust manifold where hydrogen that has been burnt, which is water vapor and leftover nitrogen, come out. So air and fuel go in here and spent combustion materials, which is water vapor and and nitrogen from air, come out over here. So let's see how this works. This is called a four-stroke engine. And that means it does a cycle of going down and up and down and up. So four different strokes. Let's start with the very, very beginning of this stroke, which is going to be right here. There is a a thing on the back here that, uh, there, you can see it. This is the push rod that goes up to a little rocker arm. And as the engine turns, see how that rocker arm rocks back and forth? The push rod pushes the rocker arm up, which then pushes the valve down, and this valve opens up to let the air go in. And at the right time, when when the piston's ready to go down, you have to open the valve so it'll pull in air. And then you get the power out of it, and you open the exhaust valve with that rocker arm so that the exhaust goes out. The opening and closing of these two valves is very important. They're just little valves that open and close, and they have to do it at exactly the right time in the cycle. So on the intake stroke, we start with the piston up at the top. We open the intake valve, and as the piston goes down, it sucks in air, which we've already put hydrogen in out here with a thing called a carburetor. The right amount of hydrogen goes in, and it pulls it down until it gets clear of the bottom. So now, this whole combustion chamber is full of air and fuel. That's the first stroke, it's called the intake stroke. It's pretty simple. Then we close the intake valve and the piston starts going up. With both valves closed, there's no place for the gases to go. So instead of going out, they just get compressed. And you see we're compressing, compressing, compressing. When the piston gets all the way up the top, the gases are compressed as high as they can get in this engine. At that moment, We fire the spark, and when we fire the spark, a fire starts burning up here, and the fire explodes, and what does it do? It pushes the piston down. That's the power stroke. That's what powers the engine. It pushes it down, and the power turns the crankshaft because we have that offset down there, and lo and behold, we're ready for the last stroke, which is the exhaust stroke, We now open the exhaust valve, and then as the piston comes up, we push the exhaust out, and we've completed a whole cycle. We're ready to now open the intake valve and pull in a brand new charge of fuel and air. And then we close both valves, we compress it, we fire the spark plug. It pushes down with force, and then we open the exhaust valve, And it comes out. Now, some of you are wondering, how in the world do you open and close those valves at exactly the right time? And some of you have heard of a thing called a camshaft. Have you heard of that? Mm -hmm. A camshaft. But not everybody knows what they are. So let's look at them. Aha. This is like a camshaft. And it's right down here where we can't even see. There we go. Yeah, that's it. (laughs) That's the camshaft. Now, if you look, there's a little rod here. And the rod has these, uh, uh, I'm going to try and turn these so you can see. Can you see how it gets fatter on one end? And it's connected to these push rods. So as this turns around, there's a place where it pushes up on the, on the valve, and that opens and closes the valve. And since it's geared with gears to the crankshaft, it does it at exactly the right time. Now, some of you guys and girls that have been interested in race engines, you know that when you open the valve and when you close them is very important on how much power you're going to get out of an engine. So some guys will, and girls, uh, will take an engine apart and remove the camshaft, which is this thing here that raises the valves, and have them reground. So the part that pushes the rod, they grind it so that it either pushes earlier or later and it changes what they call the valve overlap. And that determines how well it breathes. Most engines when they come from the factory are ground so that the car is efficient and low in pollution. Uh, Racers are more interested in power and power. (laughs) <laughs> and so, they, they grind them mm-hmm. to be very aggressive, mm-hmm. okay? But it's, it's really interesting because in an actual engine, you actually have a camshaft. A 8 engine actually has two camshafts and they have these eccentric uh, things. They, these white things could be round but not. You see how it's a little fatter there? And so, as it turns, it's going to push my finger down And in this particular case, it's going to push this rod up. When the rod goes up, whoop, way up, down, around, there it is. When the rod goes up, it's going to push the rocker arm up and down. And that's going to open and close the valve. And most uh, of our engines actually have a rocker arm with springs there and they um, make the engine go. So now, we all understand engines. And yet, if you really are interested in them, you can get into a lot of details. Like, for example, these valves. The valves are round, and they are on the end of a rod. They go up and down, and there's a hole that they go down into, and they cover the hole, and it's closed, and then they open it. So when you put a valve in an engine, you have to lap in the valve. So you put some grinding material on it, and you spin it, so that it grinds it smooth, so it'll seal good. It's kind of interesting. When a valve opens and closes, they have a rotator in the valve that turns it a little bit each time, and that's so that it will heat evenly. If you don't do that, they'll kind of warp. So they kind of rotate. Now, here's here's an interesting story to show you how sensitive these things are. Uh, Back in the... 1970s, we decided that we didn't like all the pollution we were getting from so many cars. And so Congress passed a law called the Clean Fuel Act, or the Clean Air Act. And the idea, not clean fuel, clean air. I almost really messed up there. <laughs> I think it was the first time I ever almost messed up. <laughs> but anyway, the Clean Air Act. And the Clean Air Act was to motivate all of the that make engines and other people to do things to make the air cleaner. So when the Clean Air Act came out, we had to figure out how to get rid of the pollution that was coming out of our engines, or at least to greatly reduce it. And it, it is a fact that before the Clean Air Act, the pollution in our cities was a lot worse than it is today. And remember, pollution from an internal combustion engine can be divided into three types. One type is carbon monoxide, CO. Remember, when you burn a fuel completely, it's supposed to make CO2. CO2 is the bubble in soda pop. It's the air that Dr. Paget breathes out. Show them. CO2, yes. Do I though? Sometimes, if the engine isn't hot enough, It doesn't all go all the way to CO2. It just goes to CO, carbon monoxide. CO2, we breathe out. That's what plants breathe in to make oxygen. If you breathe carbon monoxide, though, it's poisonous. Carbon monoxide gets tied up in our our blood vessels, I mean our blood cells, and makes them so they can't carry oxygen to the cells in our body. So carbon monoxide is dangerous, and we don't want it in the air. So one of the pollutant families that we need to get rid of is carbon monoxide. The second one is unburnt hydrocarbons. Gasoline is a hydrocarbon. And if some of it doesn't burn and just comes out as gasoline vapor, that's another pollutant. So all of the unburnt hydrocarbons are the second family of pollutants. And the third one we've talked about before it's nitric oxide. When you heat air to above 2,400 degrees, the nitrogen in air and the oxygen in air combine and form, oh, no, And <laughs> O, nitric oxide. Nitric oxide, that's a bad thing. Now, some of you say, well, I, I get that from the dentist. You ever been to the... Dennis, and you've asked, asked for nitrous oxide, laughing gas? They're different things, all right? Yeah. Nitrous <laughs> oxide is almost the same thing as nitric oxide, except nitric oxide is just NO. That means dentist, don't use this. <laughs> no, no. NO <laughs> is not funny. It's not funny at all. In fact, NO that comes out of the exhaust of, of engines floats around in the air, and when the sun hits it, in the presence of oxygen, it combines with an oxygen atom and forms nitrogen dioxide N with two oxygens, kind of like hydrogen, you know, two hydrogens with an oxygen, only this time it's <coughs> nitrogen dioxide, NO2. NO2 then is just air, nitrogen is air, oxygen is air but if they come together you now have NO2. NO2 is a nasty brownish gas that stinks and if it comes in contact with water like rain or dew or even water in the air, it reacts with the water and forms nitric acid. Not cool. Uh, When they passed the Clean Air Act, nitrogen dioxide, NO2, was one of the worst pollutants in Southern California. In the greater Los Angeles basin area, they had about six million automobiles at the time, and they were putting out all of this pollution, including the NO, and they had the wonderful California weather, the sun would turn the NO into NO2 and then it would form nitrogen dioxide and nitric acid and it was one of the worst kinds of pollution they had there. So you've got three kinds of pollution to worry about. Well, when the Clean Air Act was passed, the engineers at the auto companies had to say, wow, we've got to figure out how to make our engines operate much more cleanly. We've got to get rid of that pollution. How are we going to do it? And I suggest let's convert all the cars to hydrogen. Yeah. Yeah. Then we just do make it. water vapor. <laughs> well, obviously, <clears throat> that's starting to happen, but it's taken quite a few years to get a distribution and everything going. So the engineers started working on it, and they figured that they could get rid of unburnt hydrocarbons by running the exhaust over a catalyst that would help burn up the hydrocarbons. Catalysts like platinum. And so a lot of cars started getting a thing like a muffler on the tailpipe that was called a catalytic converter. Also, a catalytic converter will remove carbon monoxide because it will react it into CO2, which is okay. So catalytic converters are real neat things. But they won't do anything with nitric oxide. Nitric oxide just shoots right through. So they had to figure out some other way to get rid of nitric oxide. And finally, the thing that most auto companies figured out is we will keep the temperature from getting so hot in the engine because, remember, nitric oxide is nitrogen in air combining with oxygen in the air, but it has to be real hot for that to happen. So let's, let's make it not get so hot. Let's make it burn cooler and then we won't form the nitric oxide. Of course, when you do that, you make more carbon monoxide and more unburned hydrocarbons because you're not getting it all burnt out. So that's all right. We'll run the exhaust through a catalytic converter and we'll have pretty clean air coming out the tailpipe. And so that's what we did. Another way of saying it is the way you get rid of nitric oxide is you detune your engine. So it doesn't have as much power, and you don't get as many miles per gallon, but you don't make nitric oxide, and that's kind of what we've done. And then you use a catalytic converter to get rid of it. Now, this story is kind of an interesting one. It's a true story, but it opens the door for us to understand some real interesting ramifications. And when we're done, you're going to appreciate riding in a car so much more, you realize. What a challenge scientists have to keep things going because when they put catalytic converters on the tailpipe of a car to get rid of the pollution, the fumes from the engine ruined the catalyst. In just a thousand miles driving, it ruined the catalyst. You just bought this nice catalytic converter with platinum in it and (laughs) it's dead. And they found out the reason the fuel was killing the catalytic converters was because of something we put in the fuel to make it burn better. And that something we put in is called lead. When you put lead in gasoline, it burns smoother. It doesn't, it pushes the piston down and you get more power and it's so nice. But it ruined the catalytic converters. So they passed another law. No more leaded gasoline. Now you have to burn unleaded gasoline. And what is unleaded gasoline? It's any gasoline that doesn't have lead, okay? And you have to add something to gasoline to raise the octane or make it burn better. Sometimes they add methanol. They add different things depending on, on their strategy, but lead had to go, so we took lead out and to make sure that people didn't accidentally put leaded gas in their new car and ruin their catalytic converter, they made the, the gas pump for unleaded gasoline a different size than they make for leaded. So the leaded gasoline pump, if you put it in, it fits in the hole if you got an old car that runs on leaded gasoline. But if you got a new car, it's got a little teeny hole. And when you try to stick the thing in there, it doesn't go. And I know some of you tried to just squirt it in, but that doesn't work out so good either. A, no, I, it doesn't work. You look at me I did that. <laughs> really, so you're the one. I'll be darned. Anyway, no. <laughs> back on point. So that's to make sure that you only put unleaded gasoline in your car because one tank could ruin your catalytic converter. And in some cities, when you go to get your car safety inspected, they put in a probe to smell the, the exhaust to make sure you have no pollution. And if you have pollution, then you have to get your car fixed before you can get it safety inspected. And quite often, fixing your car means getting a new catalytic converter. So you don't want to run leaded gasoline in an unleaded car because you'll have to have to put on a new catalytic converter. Well, that all got worked out, but now I'm ready to tell you my little, my little conclusion story. Remember these valves that are coming up and down and they're going to seal? Well, when we took lead out of the gasoline, we had a big surprise because as the valves are coming down and they're sliding, it wore them out mm-hmm. as they would slide because the lead was lubricating the valves. And so the valves were not grinding away. But when we took lead out of the gasoline, the valves started burning up after a few, well, tens of thousands of miles, but way too soon. So then you have to tear the engine all apart and put in new valves. It's interesting. One little thing does that, and that does this. It shows you how much technology has gone into the modern internal combustion engine. So how do you think we're going to fix that? The valves are burning up. When the valves burn up, your engine smokes real bad. You you want some pollution? Let the valves leak a little bit. Mm, Let's see what we've got. And besides that, you waste fuel. It's just bad. You need those valves to seal so that they exhaust and input at exactly the right time. So now almost every engine that I'm aware of has valves and valve seats made out of a different metal alloy. Uh, Tobias was talking to us about steel. Steel is much more useful in most applications than iron by making a special alloy. Well, now there's a special, special alloy in our valves and our valve seats called stellite, and stellite, Without the lubrication of lead, doesn't wear out. Just think how hard science had to work to it po- make it possible to clean up our air. And that's how it is. You know, air pollution was not a problem with gasoline engines when there was only one in town. <laughs> But then when there was a thousand, it started getting worse. And when we started having millions, it became a really, really serious problem. And it started to impact people's health. So science invented this wonderful way to tra- have transportation, to be able to farm. But when it got too successful and too popular, we started getting all that pollution just because of the success of the internal combustion engine. And so. Who did society turn to to solve the problem? Science. <laughs> you have been really quiet. You're, you're still upset about that little gasoline squirt thing, aren't you? <laughs> I don't know what the kids think about me right now. <laughs> I didn't do it by the They're probably way. very grateful because they're getting their hydrogen pictures, mm-hmm. I hope. We have a couple are, of questions. Are we sending yeah. out? How many we sent? Three or four? No, we have a lot coming a in. A lot, yeah, that's great. What are the questions? And this is from Michael, and he wants to know if the amount of rings on the piston... We have a Michael. Things. Yeah. And, and, but th- this is another Michael, yeah. right? He wants to know if the um, number of rings affects the piston. Yes, it does. In fact, most pistons usually have three rings. But, yeah, making the rings on the piston are very sensitive. If you make the, the rings seal too well, it's too hard to push it up and down and you waste energy. If they're too loose, then it makes the gas leak lap around and you lose your power. So making rings is a real science and if you ever get to look at a piston ring, they're well for a regular gasoline engine they're about this big around. What are they made out of? And they're they're made out of metal. Okay. Mm-hmm. And they overlap so that you have to compress them to get them to go in the hole. Did I lose my mic? Yeah, that happens. Oh, I'm back, am I back? My gun. My piston compressed too much we lost (laughs) the signal. Anyway, so they have to be just right and uh, the the rings are a a real critical science. One of the things that's very important is they've got to last. If your rings go out, then you're gonna get a lot of blow by and and pollution too. So all these things have to be perfected and the automobile manufacturer spent a lot of money testing components to make sure they're going to last the life expectancy of a car. He also wants to know if there's any other purpose of helium or what it is besides blowing up balloons. Well, there is gallium. <laughs> yeah. Helium is a very interesting element. Remember it has two protons and two electrons, so it's it's the next step up from hydrogen. And uh, did you know that a lot of, of helium of the world supply of helium comes from Kansas, right? Near us, from the gas fields. When they drill wells to get natural gas, they get just a tiny bit of helium. Hmm. And that helium is is a pretty precious gas, so they separate it out and they use it to fill up balloons. And it has, a lot of purposes. Helium can be used for a lot of things but a lot of what it's used for is to hold up airships. You remember the story about the Hindenburg. Hindenburg was an airship that had a a fiery disaster in uh, New Jersey back in the 1930s and it was about a thousand feet long. So think of a blimp or a balloon a thousand feet long which is three football fields long, I mean it's really long. And that blimp was designed to be filled with helium because helium would lift the ship of course. But there became politics during that period because uh, of the Nazi regime in Germany and so the cell of helium to the Germans was banned because they were starting to have political problems and so the Zeppelin company that ran the Hindenburg filled it with hydrogen even though it wasn't designed for hydrogen. Hmm. And it's amazing because helium is an inert gas. It doesn't burn. It's got all the electrons at it once. It's inner shell is full. The S2 shell has two electrons. happy. It doesn't react. Hydrogen only has one, it wants to react with oxygen, it wants to burn. And so they filled this giant, giant floating fuel tank full of hydrogen fuel. And as they were getting ready to land, there were some thunderstorms in the area. No one really knows for sure how the hydrogen got ignited, but it burst into flames. And there were a hundred and some odd people, and they were still like, uh, a couple hundred feet in the air when this caught on fire, and it's interesting. Out of that terrible disaster, two thirds of the people survived. And if that fuel had been anything other than hydrogen, I think they would have all died, because it would have just exploded up and everybody would have would have been burned. But the hydrogen went floating up, and it does not give off what scientists call infrared radiation, it does not give off heat waves like burning any other fuel. If you burn a candle and you see that yellow glow, that's the heat coming off and, and flames do that. But a hydrogen flame is invisible. It doesn't give off the infrared radiation. And so um, most of the people that were hurt in the Hindenburg disaster were hurt because they jumped out afraid of the fire and they were too high. And the others were hurt because as they were running away from the accident, the engines on the Hindenburg that powered it through the air ran on diesel fuel. And it was the diesel fuel that came down and and hurt the people that were hurt. So hydrogen's actually a pretty safe fuel, but I don't recommend you put 1,000 feet of it in a fuel tank and then go flying through the air. Hydrogen saves lives. <clears throat> Hydrogen's gas. <laughs> it, it, it really is a wonderful mm-hmm. fuel. And the, the fact that we can make hydrogen out of any form of energy, solar, wind, anything you have, and water. And then when you burn it, you get the same amount of water back. So you can use it over and over and over again. You have to put the energy in to charge it up by pulling the oxygen out. You let the oxygen go back in the air so people can breathe it. And then the hydrogen goes in the tank and when you burn it, then it turns back into water. So it's a closed cycle. It's it's really a neat fuel. You can see why I've been excited about it for a long time. And it is fun. There's more and more and more hydrogen cars being built all over the world. In fact, um, I'm getting many, many, many inquiries from people that are starting to do hydrogen cars and hydrogen projects. I think we're going to see more and more in the future. Uh, It's it's really a very environmentally friendly fuel. I think we'll see it more. Okay? Mm -hmm. So does everybody understand how an engine works better? Sometimes seeing it is, is the way to do it. But you know, it really is neat. These can be tuned up and they can be made to, to create the power that we enjoy and sometimes we take for granted. We shouldn't take the work of all these great scientists for granted. By the way, parting thought, this is what we call an auto cycle. It was named after a, a great scientist. And auto cycle is what a gasoline engine is. We have other cycles, the, the steam cycle and the diesel cycle, etc. cetera. But uh, this is only possible because people learn math, learn science, learn engineering to be able to make this kind of a contraption practical. It was a neat idea, but it has been perfected by use of the scientific method and a lot of (laughs) inventionary. I didn't know the auto cycle was O-T-T-O. You didn't? No. (laughs) I learned something. Don't you remember? Did you go to school with him? Mm -hmm. Yeah, not. (laughs) You didn't go to school. Okay, we'll talk about it later. (laughs) Don't tell him that. (laughs) Thank you. See you next time.